Good morning, everyone. Can you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 8? We are going to be reading from verse 28, and we're going to read as far as chapter 9, verse 6. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with him? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bears with me, bears witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now it might seem odd that I've stopped halfway through a sentence, and uh, you'll probably be wondering as I talk, when is he going to get round to talking about this passage? Well, this is seven pages long. It's about page five. So that should, that should give you an idea. See, these verses we've just read are, are leading up to the main purpose for which Paul wrote the whole letter. The main purpose is given in an argument that he makes through chapters 9 to 11. See, for a little over a year, we've been considering Paul's letter to the Romans. And on many occasions, I've emphasised that if we are to understand what Paul has written, we must first understand why Paul wrote it in the first place. The internal evidence 
in the letter suggests that division was occurring within the church between some of the Gentile and uh, believers and some of those of Jewish background. And that the cause of this tension was the growing belief among some of the Gentile contingent that the Gentile church had replaced Israel as the people of God. Now over the next two sessions, God willing, I want to address the argument that Paul makes through chapters 9 to 11. Today I want to take a general overview before the examining the issue in greater detail and depth next time. So if I miss things out, I know. <laughs> I hope that you've all done your preparatory homework studies and have read through chapters 8 through to 11, as I'll be referring to, to them throughout today. Actually, I probably just made that task a little too simple for you. I'm actually going to be referring to chapters 1 to 16 throughout. <laughs> now, how many of you found the argument easy to follow? Hmm. No. I hope that as a consequence of today, I'm setting out my objectives like a good teacher always is told to do, I hope that as a consequence today that, the thing, uh, that things may become a little clearer when you go back and re-read -re those chapters. I don't have the answers, but what I'm trying to do today is just to give you a perspective on this so that when you re-read it, the one who has all the answers will reveal them to you. So, in preparation for next month, I would ask that you would reread these chapters at least twice between now and then. Now, before, well, I, I, I said at least. The at least was uh, the very minimum. Before looking specifically at this issue, there are a few questions which I believe we first need to address. And in particular, we need to come at this issue with a first century perspective rather than a 21st. Paul had never been to Rome. He was not responsible for either establishing this church or indeed maintaining it. He had no authority there. He was not in Rome when he wrote it. In all likelihood, he was several hundred miles away in Corinth in Greece. Now today we think of a journey of that distance as just being a few hours away. Here in Yately, we are about as far away from Rome as Paul was when he wrote. Now, if I had my passport with me, after the service, I could drive to Heathrow, buy a plane ticket and be in Rome by tea time. For Paul to travel to Rome would have meant a notoriously treacherous journey by sea, which in all likelihood would take at least a couple of weeks. Now, given that he was so far away, have you ever wondered how Paul knew what was going on in Rome? See, for Paul to have written this letter... He didn't just barge into a tricky situation without knowing the facts. He would have to be pretty sure that his understanding of the situation was absolutely accurate and that the source of that information was 100% reliable. And think about sending a letter in those days, particularly one of that length. It's about 9,000 words, if you were wondering. That was a length of a document in, in those times was almost unheard of. It's a major undertaking. It wasn't simply a case of spending a couple of hours on the word processor before hitting the send button on email. Neither could, after having produced a handwritten letter, put it in the post box uh, in order for the Royal Mail to have it delivered by Tuesday morning. See, the letter would have had to been taken there personally. 
he would have had to been hand delivered. And I reckon he would have had to send at least two associates because in all likelihood, one person is very likely they might get ill on the way and not make the delivery. So sending letters at that time was very time consuming. It was very expensive and therefore only done out of absolute necessity. Now, Paul would not have personally known most of the recipients of the letter. Most of them he would have never met before. But it's clear from chapter 16 that he did know some. Chapter 16 contains a long list of greetings, and in particular two stand out. A Christian couple of Jewish background called Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul knew them very well. We learn from Acts 18 that Paul first met them in Corinth. And they were there because they were among the Jews who had been expelled from the city of Rome by the Emperor Claudius in AD 49. Paul obviously became very close to them, since we read that he lived with them. He shared a business with them. They were in the tent-making business. And this was used to fund their ministry. And they worked together in ministry for about two years. And I would imagine that during this time, Paul would have learned a great deal about the church in Rome, how it began, how it grew and how it had developed over time. But since that time, God had called each of them to go their separate ways and Aquila and Priscilla had obviously ended up back in Rome. Now I believe that the reason that Paul was so sure about the accuracy and reliability of the information he has received about the church is because in all likelihood it has come from them. You see, I think... Upon their return to Rome, they discovered that some of the Gentile leadership of the church were teaching that the Gentile church had replaced Israel as the people of God and that this was making it extremely difficult for the returning Jewish believers to reintegrate back into the church. So much so that they recognised the potential was there for the church to split into separate Jewish and Gentile fellowships. And realising this, they sent word to Paul requesting help. Now, given that he was already committed to go to Jerusalem as a matter of urgency, Paul could not come personally. So he wrote this this wonderful letter that we can study even today. Now, Paul was writing to a church that had problems. However, that does not mean it was a bad church. In fact, from what we read in uh, Romans 1 uh, and uh, again in Romans 15 and 16, Paul thought very highly of this church and its leadership. In chapter 1 he states their faith is proclaimed in all the world. They have a good reputation. And in his concluding comments in chapter 15, he states, I myself am satisfied about you brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And he adds in chapter 16 that their obedience is known to all. Now, Paul really means this. He would not flatter them with smooth talk. In fact, in chapter 16, he goes on to warn the church to avoid such people, as there are people in the church who talk like this, who are not there out of a genuine love for the Lord, but they are there sowing division out of selfish motives. Even good churches have problems and Paul wants the leaders of the Roman church to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. In other words, he's saying you're a good church, but don't be naive. They can't simply ignore what's going on. 
They have to deal with it. And on those issues, Paul has had to speak to them boldly. There were, I believe, some among the Gentiles who were genuine and sincere believers who had mistakenly come to the view that God had replaced Israel as his people with the Gentile church. And when you read the argument Paul makes through chapters 9 to 11, particularly in chapter 10, you can see his approach. And his approach is to say, I understand why you have come to the conclusion that you have. He does not agree with them, but he can see the logic of their reasoning. And at this point, I want to give you a a general overview of Paul's approach by using the illustration of the olive tree that he gives in chapter 11. Now, what I'm about to say, Paul doesn't actually say this. I'm just trying to, I'm just using this as a means, something you can picture in your minds to make plain the approach. Now, you must weigh this up before the Lord and uh, discern whether or not I've been right to do so. Now, as no doubt some of you will know, that my son Harry and I, we like to go for long walks in the countryside. And in the autumn time, Harry made a large collection of sweet chestnuts. Now, I've got some visual aids to me. They, I, I, I was just thinking about, you probably won't be able to see, see these quite so well, not, not quite so well as the pineapple from last time. But anyway, but there is a sweet chestnut. Okay. Uh, well, you can uh, you can actually roast these and eat these. So, uh, okay. So these are what what, what we call uh, uh, sweet chestnuts. Now, in the woods around us, there are there are many types of trees, but of the chestnut variety, there's only sweet chestnuts. But you're probably more familiar with uh, these, uh, and you'll recognise that as a conker, and that's and that's the fruit of a horse chestnut. Okay, and you can look at these. I think probably even from here, you can see that they are very similar in appearance. They've got similar colouring. They've got uh, similar markings. There's a kind of a lighter brown section with a darker brown section. But as well as the similarities, you can also see that they are recognisably different. The sweet chestnut is smaller. It tends to be a more flattened round shape, if that makes sense. The top tends to be flatter and it tapers to a point. The conker is much rounder and and bigger. So there are similarities, but there are recognisable differences. And it's true with their leaves also. Now, if on a walk you find sweet chestnuts and their leaves on the ground below a tree, and then you look up and there are similar leaves and the spiny cases that contain the sweet chestnuts still on the branches of that tree, it's fairly logical to, to assume that tree you're looking at is a sweet chestnut and not a horse chestnut. Now, I don't confess to know anything about Mediterranean olive trees of the first century, but from Paul's description, there appears to have been two types, cultivated and wild. And like the different types of chestnut trees, there would have been similarities between them, but also recognisable differences. Now, looking at the issue from a Gentile perspective, They are looking at the branches of an olive tree and seeing branches that are typical of wild olive trees and they are therefore concluding, we are looking at a wild olive tree. Now, however, however, they know that in that very place, there once stood, many years before, perhaps about 25, 30 years before, a cultivated olive tree. 
And so thinking logically, it would appear that in the intervening period, the gardener had dug up the old cultivated tree and replaced it with the wild one. Now, Paul used the illustration of the olive tree to help them understand God's purposes concerning Israel so they, so they could see why they'd come to the wrong conclusion. See, the evidence they were seeing in real life seemed to indicate that the church had replaced Israel. See, remember, Paul is writing within 30 years of the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And the church that had begun entirely Jewish had in such a short space of time become predominantly Gentile. And the proportion, that means the proportion of Gentiles in the church was far greater than Jews, even at this time. Now, these were faithful men who preached the gospel, and their experience was that Gentiles would readily respond, while the Jews did not. In fact, they seemed unnaturally resistant, some even hostile. Therefore, the proportion of Gentiles was only likely to increase until the church would become almost exclusively Gentile. Now, given that, this seemed to indicate that God had given up on Israel and was replacing them with the Gentile church. It seemed a logical and reasonable assessment and conclusion to the evidence. Now, in response in chapter 11, Paul states that they are right, that most of the branches of the tree they are seeing are wild. However, does that, that does not mean that the trunk and the roots are. And he assures them that the trunk and the roots are most definitely those of the original cultivated tree. God's word has not failed. God has not given up on his people Israel. He has not broken his promises. They remain just as much part of his plan and purpose in the future as they have been in the past. Admittedly, in the present, they are being stubborn. And as a consequence of unbelief, some of the natural branches have been broken off and wild branches have been grafted in their place. There has been a partial replacement of sorts. Gentiles, believers, have been grafted in to become part of his people, but Israel certainly has not been replaced. Gentile believers should recognise their place, Therefore, it is not a cause for arrogance, but rather a realisation of their need for humility. See, part of what we see in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is using a sympathetic, well-reasoned argument. However, Paul is far too wise to realise that this issue could be solved simply by logical argument. If it could, this letter would have been considerably shorter. Paul is not the kind of man that you would use 9,000 words when 90 would do. See, his main concern is not with the issue itself. He is far more concerned about the attitude underlying it and fueling it. If Paul is to be successful in resolving this problem, then he needs to deal with their attitude. And as I said earlier, I believe that some of the Gentiles were sincere believers who had mistakenly come to this view. However, as Paul made clear in chapter 16, some among them are selfish troublemakers, not genuine believers. And such people are only too willing to take advantage of a situation like this and use it as an opportunity to, show, uh, to sow discord and dissension among the body. 
We read many times in scripture how God searches the heart of man and that he is fully aware of our secret motives and intentions. Paul is a man who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and his experience of walking the Spirit through many years of ministry has made him very aware of what is in the heart of fallen man. He knows very well that people's hearts and minds are very rarely persuaded through logical arguments alone, however well they are reasoned. See, people tend to become rather too personally attached to their ideas, theories and viewpoints. So when they are challenged by reasoned arguments, they tend to take it rather personally and respond accordingly. And I'm sure many of you will have experienced that. I can remember at work there were issues being discussed during staff meetings where it very quickly descended into two polarised opposite positions in which both sides quickly became entrenched. And in such situations, reasoned discussions soon give way to spiteful personal insult. See, we like to think of ourselves as being neutral, unbiased, open to persuasion by well-reasoned arguments. Scientists especially like to portray themselves in this way. But the fact of the matter is that people are often far too personally attached to their theories and beliefs that they are very reluctant to admit that they're in the wrong, even when the evidence to the contrary is indisputably overwhelming. Now, having worked for nearly 30 years as a school teacher, I'm all too aware of this. And you won't be surprised to hear that quite often in my job, I encountered somewhat difficult, uh, some difficult and somewhat disruptive characters. And as I became more experienced, I came to realise that the challenging behaviour in some classes was usually being orchestrated by one or two individuals, like puppet masters. Sometimes you could spot this yourself. It's a lot easier to spot when you're observing other people's lessons. And when you did have this problem, it was often a wise thing to do to uh, discuss this with other experienced colleagues who knew those concerned very well to receive some enlightenment as to what was going on. And having been enlightened as to what was going on, it, media, it made it easier to confront and deal with the issue. Now, when I did so and confronted the relevant individual telling him to stop that, the first response would always be denial. What have I done wrong? I haven't done anything. Now, when presented with the evidence, you could see in their face a realisation that they've been rumbled. Now, the next tactic would be to reflect the light that was shining in their direction by pointing an accusing finger at somebody else and said, well, you didn't do anything about him when he did it four weeks ago last Thursday on a cold, wet November afternoon. And then they turn it back on you and saying, therefore, you're being, you've been unfair. You've got it in for me. You're picking on me because you don't like me. You see what happens. Even when it's clear to all that they're in the wrong, won't admit it. And this is what people are like. Not just like the stroppy teenagers I used to teach. It's a point made clear in John's Gospel. People prefer to remain in darkness rather than coming into the light, lest their sinful deeds be exposed. So if Paul was to be successful in providing a solution to the problems of the church in Rome, he would need to address attitudes as well as the logical argument. 
Now you might ask, what is the evidence that Paul was dealing with attitudes? To which I would respond considerable. See, for example, in chapter 11, on at least three occasions, he rebukes the attitude of the Gentiles, firstly for their arrogance, do not boast against the branches, he says. Then he warns them not to be haughty, and being haughty is to show contempt for people. It's looking down your nose at them. And then, lastly, he tells them not to be conceited. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't think you know it all. Now, how do you know those comments are directed at Gentiles? Well, apart from the fact that he clearly states in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, it's also clear if you take careful note of the personal pronouns used throughout chapters 9 to 11. Clearly, when he uses I, Paul is referring to himself. And when he uses they... It's referring to Israel. Sometimes it's a reference to Jewish believers, but mostly he's referring to unbelieving Israel. And we need to discern between the two if we're going to make sense of the argument. Consequently, when he uses you, he's referring to the Gentile members of the church. Now, attitudes affect outward behaviour. and The attitude of some of the influential Gentiles was seriously affecting relationships within the body. Now, in chapters 12 through 15, Paul gives a long list of do's and don'ts regarding how the people of the church are to relate one another. Now, this is not a list of suggestions. It's not 50 handy hints for a successful and harmonious church. These were, in, these were instructions that he intended them to obey. Now, from these instructions, now we won't go through them all, we'll... God willing, look at that, those in some detail later on. But from these instructions, we can discern the effect that the negative attitude of the Gentiles was having on the body. The do instructions tell us the things that they were not doing that they should have been. For example, he tells them to love without hypocrisy, be kindly affectionate, be hospitable, to welcome those weak in the faith. He goes on to say, if it is possible, as much depends on you, yeah, live peaceably with all men. Now, the fact that Paul has to tell them suggests that they weren't doing it. Now, the don't instructions tell us what they were doing that they should not have been. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Don't be in dispute over doubtful things. Don't quarrel. Don't show contempt. And three times in chapter 14, he warns them not to be judgmental. And this chapter is particularly dealing with matters of cultural sensitivity for Jewish believers concerning special diets and special days. Now, the fact that Paul tells them not to do these things suggests that they were going on in the church. Attitudes affect behaviour. And even though this was a good church, they could not afford to be complacent about these things. The underlying causes of discord and division needed to be challenged and resolved. In fact, the whole letter was written to deal with the underlying issue. Because the underlying issue to all of this is what is known as the deadliest of all sins, it's human pride. That is why Paul spent the first eight chapters reminding them of the gospel. Because the gospel is the only means by which human pride can be dealt with. 
In that section, Paul has reminded them that whatever their background, be it Jewish or Gentile, none of them have a right to salvation. None of them have been saved because they're good. Neither wild branches nor cultivated branches deserve their place in the olive tree. Neither has lived up to the demands of the revelation they have received. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter 5, Paul makes clear that if you insist on falling out over matters of ancestry, consider this. It's on account of your ancestry that you were in the predicament of having fallen short of the glory of God in the first place. You see, we are all, Jew and Gentile alike, descendants of Adam. And he reminds them that just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. We are all sinners as a direct consequence of our ancestry. And our ancestry is therefore not a cause for boasting. We are saved because God has chosen by his grace to deal with us mercifully. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. None of us are branches on the olive tree that represents God's people because we deserve to be there. We are there because Jesus died upon the cross to make the perfect sacrifice for our sin and God raised him from the dead to confirm that his sacrifice was acceptable and wholly effective for our salvation. See, all the way through the letter, Paul has been preparing them for the revelation he's about to give them concerning God's plan and purposes concerning Israel. And in chapters 1 to 7, Paul has felt the need to speak to both Jewish and Gentile believers concerning their attitudes towards the gospel and in the light of that towards each other. And in fact, I believe that it's fair to say that in those first seven chapters, he has directed more of his comments towards the Jewish contingent about their attitude. However, from chapter 9 onwards, the focus is now directed almost exclusively towards the Gentile believers. Now, having reminded them of the gospel that unites them, Paul has one more thing to do in order for them to be ready to receive the revelation he wants to give them in chapters 9 to 11. And that was to talk to them about the importance of continuing to walk in the Spirit. See, some members of both communities had backslidden and were walking according to the flesh rather than the Spirit. Some had fallen back into former bad habits and were becoming increasingly worldly. Others were trying to be good. They were trying to keep the law and in so doing they were trying to establish a righteousness of their own. They were becoming legalistic, self-righteous and conceited. Both are different expressions of walking according to the flesh. So Paul has had to warn both that to continue in that direction will lead to death. And he had to remind them both that they have died to their old way of life and emphasise that the way to life is by walking in the spirit. Only when they put to death the flesh and were walking in the spirit would they be able to receive this revelation from God. And walking in the Spirit means to live 
in an ongoing experiential relationship with God as he works in us and through us by his spirit. It requires our full cooperation, expressed through reverent, trustful obedience in response to his to, to known love and full assurance that we have been adopted into God's family as his children. When we walk in the spirit, we learn to think differently. We have new desires. For those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. We experience an inner desire to identify with Christ in his sufferings and an inner strength to overcome sin and put to death the misdeeds of the body. We experience a new strength that helps us in our weakness, that teaches us how to pray and a desire to live in such a way to please him because we love him who first loved us. We come to understand that the grace of God describes our standing before him that we have been fully forgiven and we are now in right relationship with him. And as we continue to live in this relationship with him, he reveals more of his purposes to us. And in chapter 8, verse 29, he reveals that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And this has been his plan all along. And last time we considered this more fully. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read about how God made man in his image to live in a loving relationship with him in a perfect world. Now, even though man fell, God's purposes have not changed because God has predestined to remake man in his own image. He has put his spirit in us to conform us to the image of his son. And he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth in which his dwelling place will be with us. In other words, he's going to make a perfect world in which we can fully experience a loving relationship with him. Now this offer of the gospel is fully, freely and honestly made to all of mankind. For God desires that all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, God foreknew that not everyone would accept his free gift of the gospel, but that does not mean that he has not sincerely made it available to all. Now, as a consequence of his experience of walking in the Spirit, Paul is so fully persuaded of God's faithfulness that he has full assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that nothing can separate us from his love, though many would seek to try. See, when you read through verses 31 to 39 of chapter 8, it is abundantly clear that the gospel is not a call to an easy life with a trouble-free existence. See, from the time he surrendered his life to the Lord, Paul has experienced tribulation, opposition, threats, accusation and persecution. Following his conversion, Paul had to be smuggled out of Damascus because people were threatening to kill him. Throughout the whole of his ministry in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, people have actively opposed opposed him. On occasions, they have persuaded the authorities that Paul has been stirring up trouble, which which resulted in him being arrested and put into prison. On other occasions, they have stirred up mobs, not only to verbally attack him, but also to dish out the most savage and brutal of beatings upon him. 
He's been ridiculed for his beliefs concerning the resurrection and he's had to withstand attack from the demonic realm. These are all very well documented throughout the book of Acts. Yet in the face of all this opposition, much of it genuinely life-threatening, we may well ask, what has enabled him to stand firm? And Paul is quite clear. It is the unquestionable faithfulness of God who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. Paul's experience of walking in the Spirit has so convinced him of God's faithfulness that he completely trusts him to fulfil all of his promises to us. Shall he, shall he not with him freely give us all things? All of this has not only enabled Paul to stand firm against all the considerable opposition he has, faith, he has faced, it's also empowered him to overcome it. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this leads Paul to the conclusion that he gives in verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now these very well-known verses are Paul's final comments in leading up to the discussion on Israel that he's been preparing them for. Now sadly, the, in, the insertion of a chapter division has resulted in many missing the flow of the argument that Paul is making. You see, all through the letter, Paul writes in such a way that he makes a statement and then he anticipates an objection. He has just asserted that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, what is the most obvious objection that someone might make against that assertion? What about the Jews? Doesn't the fact that there are so few Jews in the church and the fact that so few are accepting the gospel suggest that they could not only be separated from God's love, doesn't this confirm they have been and have been subsequently replaced by the Gentile church? Do you get the argument? Do you see why Paul begins this argument concerning God's plan and purposes for Israel here? The suggestion that Israel has been replaced in God's plan and purposes is a very serious matter. It suggests that God's word has failed. You see, after revealing his thoughts and feelings concerning the current resistance of the Jews to the gospel and the prospect of them who remain so facing a Christless eternity, Paul states in verse 5 of chapter 9 that it is not that the word of God is without effect. Or as it's translated in the ESV and the NIV, it is not as though God's word had failed. That's the charge. Why would Paul say that? See, the current spiritual state of unbelieving Israel, wrongly interpreted, could lead one to that conclusion. And to demonstrate that this is not the case, Paul needs to show them that their interpretation of the current state of affairs is wrong. And to do this, he needs to reveal to them God's purpose and plan for Israel in the future. Paul is aware, as I said earlier, that it's not a case of simply making a well-reasoned logical argument. He will need to deal with attitudes as well. And the way that Paul begins to do this reveals the wisdom given to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to begin by focusing on attitudes, beginning with his own. 
And isn't that such an important lesson for us all to consider? Whenever we engage in a reasoned debate or a conflict resolution, realise that we're going to be dealing with attitudes as well and start by considering your own. Now notice how desperately saddened Paul is about the plight of unbelieving Jews. I have great sorrow and continual grief. He goes on to say that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ if that would save them. Now, can you imagine the reaction of those Gentile believers that Paul warned about their arrogant and haughty attitudes towards the unbelieving Jews? It's like he's saying, the fact that my countrymen will face an eternity without Christ if they persist in unbelief is not a cause for feeling smug and superior. It's a cause for mourning and sadness. And in verse 1, Paul calls upon God as his witness that he's not making this up. He's not lying. Well, why would anyone think that he was? Well, let's go back to chapter 8. See, who was responsible for almost all the opposition that Paul faced? Who was it that stoned Paul at Lystra, inflicting such a beating on him, leaving him within an inch of his life? Who were the ones who wanted to put Paul to death in order to stop him preaching the gospel? Well, it was the Jews. And from a worldly perspective, it wasn't beyond belief that Paul could feel, uh, from a worldly perspective, it's beyond belief that Paul could feel as he does about the Jews. See, if anyone had reason to be arrogant and haughty towards them with a serve-them-right attitude, it was Paul. Yet their plight is what kept Paul awake at night in anguish over them. And imagine how you would feel reading Paul's feelings if you were one of those Gentile leaders whose preaching had led to conflict and division between the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church. How would those who had withheld hospitality and shown contempt for their brethren of Jewish origin be feeling having read that? See, what wisdom to begin addressing this issue this way. And how anyone, after realising this, could argue that the Bible is not the inspired word of God is totally beyond me. Now, before summing up, I want to make one final point that I feel is important for you to consider before you go and reread these chapters. See, at the end of verse 6, Paul makes a statement. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, God willing, we will consider what Paul means by that next time. However... Whatever Paul does mean, it is clear that he is referring to a group of people as a whole and not to individuals. Therefore, in the point he goes on to make, he cannot be referring to individuals concerning their salvation, but rather a group of people who have been chosen for service. Now I flag this up now because my aim this morning has been to help you read these chapters with greater understanding and clarity as to what Paul is actually saying. And in order to do this, we need to pay careful attention, as I stated earlier, to the pronouns, the I's, the U's and the them's, so that we know who is being addressed. And having done so, we also need to consider whether Paul is referring to individuals concerning their salvation or to a people group chosen for service. In chapters 9 to 11, Paul considers both. And if we do not take care to make this distinction at each relevant point, we will draw the wrong conclusion. We also need to understand how chapters 9 to 11 relate to each other. See, in chapter 9, Paul is raising issues 
answering questions and giving partial answers. And in chapter, uh, chapter 10, he's considering some of the supporting evidence. But it's not until chapter 11 that he addresses those issues and gives answers to those questions and fuller answers to the ones he's partially answered already. Finally today, we've spent much time thinking about attitudes. So as you reread these chapters, you need to discern whether for that particular section you're reading, Paul is addressing attitudes or he's making part of the reasoned argument. Now, as you reread those chapters between now and next time, having prayerfully asked for God's guidance, consider the points that I've highlighted this morning. And I believe that the true meaning of these, cha- of these chapters will become increasingly apparent. Now, in bringing this all to a conclusion, then, I think it's appropriate to consider how we feel about having been grafted into the olive tree that represents God's people. Do we ever experience times when we forget that we are only there because of God's favour towards the undeserving? We're only there by the grace of God. What should our response be? Well, from the root of the word grace, we get the word gratitude. The recipients of grace should respond with gratitude. And part of the problem with some of those Gentile believers was they forgot that they were grafted in not because they deserved it, but because of the unmerited favour of God. They were there only because of his grace. In forgetting this, they became arrogant, haughty and conceited. Instead of gratitude, they developed attitude. And here is an important lesson for us all. We need to always remember that we have been saved by the grace of God and our hearts should therefore be full of gratitude, not attitude. May we, ne- may we therefore never forget that we are only there by his grace and it is my prayer that this will indeed be the case for us all. So I want to close with a prayer that Paul wrote to another church. You'll find it in the very last verses of 2 Corinthians. I'm sure you all know it well, so please join in if you wish. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.